Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Luke 17, 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. The ESV here does a very good job translating this initial phrase. Notice the exclamation point uh, on the end, showing this is in the imperative mood in Greek, which simply means it's a command. Uh, this is not a suggestion. This is not just a statement. This is a command. Pay attention. Be on guard. Notice Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves, not yourself. It's plural. And so the command is this, help each other out. Be on guard against sin. If you remember last Sunday, the two verses previous uh, to this really set up our text today. Jesus is telling us to pay attention, to be alert, to be on guard against sins. We're, We're not just to do this in our own lives, but we as a church are to be on guard for each other as well. We are supposed to be involved in each other's life to help one another follow Jesus more faithfully. And so the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at two principles, two responsibilities uh, that every member of this church has to every other member of this church. It doesn't matter if you have a position in the church or not. It doesn't matter if you're uh, old or young. It doesn't matter if you've been saved for 20 years or you're a brand new Christian. All of us have these two responsibilities toward each other as we seek to help each other follow Jesus. If you were here a few weeks ago when I preached on church membership, uh, you may remember I kept saying that being a part of a church means that you've committed to this group of people to help each other follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a church. It's a group of people who follow Christ together. So the next couple of Sundays, we're going to learn two very practical ways that we do that. And uh, neither of these is easy. Neither of these is uh, our natural inclination. Uh, Yet both of them are the way that we love each other best and imitate the love that Jesus has for us. So here they are, two responsibilities that every Christian has for one another. Luke 17, 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So first of all, the first responsibility, if we see a brother in sin, we have a responsibility to rebuke them. Second, if we see that the brother repents of sin, we have a responsibility to forgive them. And so today we're going to be focusing on that first one. Next week we'll talk about the forgiveness aspect. Pay attention to yourselves. Guard each other against sin. And here's how you do this. Here's how you help each other follow Jesus. If you see sin, confront it. Uh, Rebuke the brother who is in sin. Hold each other accountable. uh, accountable. And this, again, goes completely against our nature. Uh, We don't want to confront each other. We want to mind our own business, and we kind of want everybody else to mind their own business. And so this idea of being involved in one, another, one another's lives is just so counterintuitive uh, to the way that we think. It's hard and it's awkward uh, to go to someone privately and confront some sin in their life. And it's just as hard and unnatural to be on the receiving end of that rebuke. But this is what we're called to do. And I would like to see us as a church become more and more comfortable Uh, having this type of mutually sanctifying relationship with one another. We ought to embrace the accountability of a local church family and participate in that. It's not always easy, but it is always best uh, for us if we do this. Now, you might be thinking at this point, won't this hurt the unity of the church? I mean, if we're going around rebuking one another, 
uh, for sin. In reality, I think this is actually the best thing for the unity of the church, because consider the alternatives, right? If we don't practice this, what are the other options? Well, I think these are the most common, uh, gossip and judging one another, right? If we don't go around, uh, if we don't rebuke someone who's in sin, uh, likely we're either going to go around telling everybody else what somebody did, or we're going to distance ourselves from that brother in Christ and look down on them. Uh, neither of those is a Christian attitude. Instead, we are commanded, if you see a brother in sin, confront them. Now, Jesus doesn't give us much in terms of specifics here in Luke 17 about how to go about this. He just says, if you see a brother in sin, rebuke him. That's the principle. Over in Matthew 18, he gives us the process. And so we're going to go there now and see this step-by-step process laid out by Christ. And then we'll look at a couple of examples where this actually happened in the life of the early church. So Matthew 18 Beginning in verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So this is an instance in this case where someone, uh, the sin is uh, directly against you. Somebody does something that wrongs you. You are supposed to go to him and confront him. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Okay, so step one is go to the person, confront them, tell him his fault. If he responds well and says, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong, then you've gained your brother back. Fellowship has been restored, mission accomplished, and it's done. Okay. If he doesn't respond well, then you have verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So step two is take a couple of other people from the church with you and confront the brother in sin. So before you bring it to the church, which is step three, okay, you bring a couple of people to hear the matter, and the charge is established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You don't want uh, one person bringing a charge before the church just because they think a brother has sinned uh, in some way. Instead, you want to have two or three involved to confirm that, yes, this brother uh, is in sin. He is refusing to repent. And so, again, if he listens to the two or three, great. Mission accomplished. Fellowship's restored. Everything's good. You move on. But if he's still not listening, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So step one is go to the person, confront them. Step two, bring a couple of other people with you uh, as you go and talk to them. Step three is bring it to the church. And this would normally be done in the context of a members meeting. Uh, If someone was Uh, you know, refusing to listen, refusing to repent of some open sin and was a member of our church, uh, we would then bring that before the church and say, hey, uh, this brother's been confronted uh, one-on-one and then with a group and they're not listening. Now we're going to bring this to the church. Okay, if after it's been presented to the church, the brother decides to repent, then great. Mission accomplished, fellowships restored, we move on. If he still won't listen, even after the whole church is urging him to repent of this sin, Then step four is the last part of that verse, which is basically saying, remove them from your fellowship. Okay, so removing someone from membership is not something we do quickly. In fact, in the history of our church, as far as I'm aware, it's never been done, uh, except when someone maybe hasn't attended for, you know, a year or something. But uh, in terms of a sin issue, I don't think it's ever gotten to this final step. Okay, but this is the instruction that Jesus gives us. So the principle in Luke 17, if a brother sins, rebuke him. In Matthew 18, we get this four-step process of what that looks like. Uh, Now let's look at a couple of real-life situations in the early church in which this process was followed. 
Uh, the first one we're going to look at is Apollos, Acts 18, verse 24. And here the issue uh, is not some sort of gross, you know, immoral sin or anything. Uh, it was a doctrinal error. He was teaching uh, an incomplete gospel. And so we see here in, in Acts 18 a really great model of how to confront someone. Uh, Acts 18, verse 21, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. So Apollos was a really smart guy. He was a great preacher. He knew the Bible. Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Okay, so he taught accurately, but he'd only been instructed in the baptism of John the Baptist. He wasn't a false teacher, okay, but he just hadn't been taught some things about the new covenant. And so this was a point of doctrinal weakness in Apollos' preaching. Now notice verse 26. Uh, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila are only mentioned a couple of times in the New Testament, but these were friends of Paul, uh, a husband and wife. They even had a little church that met in their home. And uh, they heard Apollos preaching, and look at what they did. They didn't stand up in the middle of the sermon to correct him. Okay, They didn't go to everybody else in the church and say, hey, don't listen to that guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, no, they took him aside privately, and they said, hey, uh, I want to explain to you the way of God more accurately. They had this conversation between them and him alone and expressed what they felt he was missing in his preaching about Christ. And from what we can tell about the rest of this passage, Apollos received this instruction and was helped by it. He, he went on to become a great preacher of the gospel because a husband and wife loved him enough to confront him privately. Uh, let's look at another example, Galatians 2. Uh, by the way, as we read this text, Cephas is the Aramaic way of saying Peter. So we're talking about the Apostle Peter here. Uh, when Cephas came to Antioch, Galatians 2.11, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul speaking, uh, saying, I confronted him because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, so in this text, uh, Cephas, or Peter, is the one who is in sin. Uh, Peter is essentially acting like uh, what we would call today a racist. Okay, He was discriminating against the non-Jews who was in his company. He was separating himself from the Gentiles when Jewish people were around. He wouldn't eat with the Gentile Christians and so forth. And so Paul confronts him. He, he opposed him to his face. He called him out for this blatant sin. Uh, notice in verse 14 it says, He did this confronting before them all. This was not a private conversation. Now, we don't know all of the specifics of the situation, but it would seem that Peter was persisting in this sin. Uh, he had been confronted privately and refused to listen. And so Paul confronted him with others present. Uh, Paul had written in 1 Timothy chapter 5, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Okay, so when someone is persisting in sin, then it's time to get others involved. And that's what Paul does. 
Again, the point here isn't just to bash Peter. Okay, Paul was not just coming along to be a jerk to him. Uh, He was urging him to repent of this sin. Paul did not hate Peter. He loved him. And he loved him enough to correct what he saw was a sin in his life. What Peter did, oh, I'm sorry, what Paul did here helped Peter to become a better Christian. And now there's other, other examples of similar things taking place. We, we looked in a few weeks uh, past at 1 Corinthians, the example there where Paul uh, tells them this gross immoral sin was going on. He tells them, kick that guy out of your church. Uh, and then in 2 Corinthians, the person repents. They come back and Paul says, receive him back to your fellowship. Forgive him, embrace him as your brother. And so all of this demonstrates that the goal in correcting a brother who is in sin is always their spiritual benefit. We go into that first step in the process, hoping and praying that God would soften their heart to receive this correction and repent of the sin. And if they do, we instantly forgive and move on. If they don't, then we take a few others with us and confront again in the presence of more people. And if they will repent again, we forgive, we move on. If they don't listen, but they just keep persisting in this sin, Then we bring it to the church and again, urge them to turn from their sin, get back on track, following Jesus as they should. All of this is for their spiritual benefit. Confronting each other takes boldness and love. It's far easier to just ignore these issues. It'd be far more comfortable to just kind of see somebody that's in sin and say, well, uh, I don't don't approve of what he's doing, but I'm just going to stay away from that. That's the easier approach to take for sure. Uh, But it's also not the loving approach. James wrote in chapter 5 of his letter, My brother, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so our goal in confronting someone is always to bring them back to following Jesus. If we're doing this for their spiritual benefit, that should affect the way in which we confront each other. A loving rebuke should be thought through very carefully. I'm going to give you here uh, 11 tips on how to go about this when the situation arrives. These will be applicable really in a lot of areas of life, not just in church life, uh, also in marriage. Uh, When you have to confront your spouse about some sin, a lot of these tips will be applicable there as well. So here's a few uh, wisdom principles from Scripture about how we confront one another. Number one, don't rebuke everything. I feel like this should be obvious, but I need to say it because if you just take uh, that verse in Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him, that may lead you to really nitpick about every little thing that you disagree with. Uh, but First Peter 4 says, above all, keeping love one, uh, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Don't be that person uh, who goes around saying, you know, well, that's not very Christ-like just because somebody made a sarcastic comment or something. Uh, save the rebukes for sins that are objective and clear violations of Scripture, something that is hindering their uh, spiritual growth or their testimony. Number two, don't jump to conclusions. Proverbs 18, verse 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. Uh, Don't go into a confrontation with someone with a bunch of assumptions. Hear them out and be slow to form judgments. It may be that something looked bad, but there's actually a reasonable explanation for it. I remember when I was in college, uh, Catherine and I were dating, and uh, we'd been dating for a couple of years at this point, and one of her friends texted her and said, hey, I saw David uh, sitting with some blonde girl. I'm not sure what that's about, but I figured I should let you know. Uh, Well, Catherine immediately remembered my mom was in town, okay, and my mom looks a lot younger than she is, and so 
Uh, someone just assumed that I was with some other woman. Well, no, it was just my mother. So there may be something that you look at and think, well, that's a problem, but there might be a reasonable explanation. So don't come into a confrontation with assumptions. When you go to confront someone, assume the most innocent reason for their actions, not the worst. Uh, don't confront them based upon assumptions or hearsay. Make sure you have the facts and give them a chance to explain before you just jump down their throat about something that uh, may just be a misunderstanding. Number three, and this one is huge. Okay, number three, don't talk to anyone about this issue if you haven't yet confronted the person directly. Okay, remember step one in the process, uh, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Okay, if you're concerned about someone who is in sin, or if somebody did something to hurt you, something that offended you, I don't want to hear about it unless you've talked to them first. And if you come to me and say, hey, I think brother so-and-so is doing this or whatever, my first question to you is going to be, have you talked to them about it? Okay, because I don't want to hear about it unless you've gone to that first step. Go to them yourself. You have no right to spread a rumor about somebody else when you've not even bothered to go and talk to them about it. And if you're really concerned, if you really love them and care about them, why are you talking to somebody else who can do nothing about it? Uh, go to them. Talk to them face to face. And if they receive your correction, then that's the end of it. Don't tell anybody else uh, if they will uh, immediately respond well. Number four, don't put it off. Uh, this is especially true if the issue is between you and somebody else. If somebody, if a brother in Christ has sinned against you in some way, uh, deal with that quickly. Matthew 5, verse 23, Jesus says, If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. We ought to seek reconciliation with each other quickly. If you're at odds with someone in this church, make it right today. Uh, like, don't leave the building this morning without making that right. Uh, talk to them. Otherwise, that offense can fester inside of you. And every time you uh, come to church, you're thinking about what they said to you or that one time they hurt you. And uh, you're getting more and more frustrated about it. You see them and the way they scratch their head just drives you nuts. And uh, then they're talking to Malachi and you think, oh, I bet they're talking about me. Uh, you know, you know what I'm, come on, don't look at me like that. You all know what I'm talking about. Uh, we get more and more frustrated the longer we put off just going and talking to them. Hebrews 12, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Uh, bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Uh, all it does is hurt you. Uh, most of the time, they don't even know that you're upset with them. <laughs> and so if there's an issue between you and another brother in Christ, go make that right quickly. Number five, don't judge motives. When you confront someone, don't try to draw conclusions about why they did what they did. You don't know. You can't read their mind. You don't know if they meant it that way. So don't judge motives. Matthew 7 verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. Now, that doesn't mean don't ever confront someone who's in sin because we've already seen like 20 places in the Bible where we're told to do that, okay? What this is talking about is don't judge motives. Number six, examine yourself before correcting others. Let's keep reading there in Matthew 7. For with what judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. 
And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't have higher standards for other people than you do yourself. And if you see a brother in sin, uh, sorry, a brother in Christ who is in sin, and it's something that's clear and objective and you're genuinely concerned for their soul, first stop and examine your own heart, then go and try to help them. Number seven, pray and ask the Lord for the right timing and words to say. This is a step that I feel like uh, we tend to not emphasize as much as we ought to. Uh, before you do any of this, we ought to pray. We ought to ask God for the right timing, for the right words to say. Proverbs 25, verse 11, a, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Ask God for wisdom to know when to confront someone and how to go about that. Uh, you should never confront someone without first praying and asking for guidance. 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice in those verses, God is the one who may grant repentance. God is the one who may lead them to come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. God has to do that. And so if we're truly depending on God, we ought to pray and ask God to open the heart of the person before we go to confront them. Number eight, don't text. Now you're all like, is that in the Bible? Uh, no, I don't have a verse for that. But just don't do it. It's a bad idea. If you're going to confront someone, do it face to face where they can hear your tone of voice and where things are not likely to be misconstrued. Uh, normally when I preach, I try to just stick to the Bible and not give you too much of my opinion. But that's for what it's worth. That's my advice on that. Don't text. Uh, go to the person and talk. Number nine. Don't confront someone when you're upset. Uh, this is likely to be a tense situation, and you need to go into it with the right frame of mind and spirit. Uh, Proverbs 15, verse 1, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You might be completely right in what you're saying to them, but if you say it in a way that is harsh, it's just going to make things worse. Uh, they need to feel the love that you have for them or the correction that you offer will not be received. Number 10, remember the goal. <clears throat> Accusations harden the will. Questions convict the conscience. Uh, the goal is not to put them in their place. The goal is to stimulate their hearts to repentance. Again, remember Luke 17, 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Uh, that is the goal. You want to confront them in such a way as to urge them to turn from this sin. So remember the goal. Uh, Proverbs 25, 15, with, a, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Uh, you don't want to be condescending or mean. You should communicate by your words and the tone that you have that, that you are genuinely concerned for them. Number 11, this is the last one. Show people that you love them before the time comes when you have to confront them. Uh, Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. If people know that you love them and you've gone out of your way in the past to demonstrate that, they will be far more receptive to hearing your rebuke now. 
So get to know people in the church. Make, make deposits before you make withdrawals. Uh, don't rebuke somebody that you barely even know and you've never done anything for. Uh, work on cultivating friendships with brothers in Christ before you ever even think about trying to correct them. Get to know their personality. Uh, this will also help when that time comes when a rebuke is needed. Some people respond uh, better to a blunt rebuke. Others need a more gentle tone. Uh, Galatians 6 sums all of this up well. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Uh, this is our spiritual responsibility to hold one another accountable. Uh, notice the spirit is gentleness. And the goal is restoration. This is the key to confronting a brother in love. And then notice he also says, keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted as well. Be, be humble as you seek to help others follow Christ more consistently. We're all capable of sin. We all uh, sin on a regular basis. And so we should not come to someone with a condescending attitude. Uh, in the last section of my notes here, I want to close with one more admonition. And that is this. Work to be the kind of person that receives correction well. You need to not only be loving and courageous enough to confront a brother in sin, but you also need to be humble enough to receive correction from others. Uh, Proverbs 9 verse 7, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who rep reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. If you try to correct a fool, he's going to hate you for it. If you offer correction to a wise man, he'll thank you for it. And so we as Christians ought to strive to be that wise man, somebody that receives correction well. We ought to recognize that spiritual accountability uh, that a church offers is for our own good. It's for our growth in Christ. And so receive correction well. Here's uh, seven steps to receive correction. I'll go over these quickly. Number one, listen. Uh, when somebody comes and confronts you, offers a correction, listen. Don't try to justify yourself right away. Stop and listen to what they're saying. Number two, thank them for loving you enough to talk to you about it. Uh, this took courage for them. It was very uncomfortable and, and not an easy thing for them to do. And so even if they're wrong about this specific thing that they're rebuking you for, how you respond will either cause them to feel that they can never confront you again, or it will open up communication between the two of you in the future. And so thank them for loving you enough to talk to you about it. Number three, if you are wrong, repent. And that's obviously in our text. Uh, that is the goal in all of this. And so if somebody offers a correction to you and, and you see right away, yeah, they're right about this, uh, turn from that sin quickly. Number four, if they simply misunderstood the situation, calmly explain. Uh, don't resort to how dare you. Uh, just explain the situation and be good-natured about it. Number five, if it's not as clear-cut, pray and consider what they've said. Sometimes these rebukes may not be something immediately black and white. Like, you know, I heard you cursing out that guy at the store. Maybe it's something a little bit more subtle. Like, you interrupt people a lot when they're talking to you, and it comes across really rude. I've heard that rebuke before from someone in this room that gave it to me. And they were right. Uh, often we are blind to our own issues. We can see that speck in everybody else's eyes, but we miss the log sticking out of our own. And I've noticed that sometimes a correction that I'm given may seem totally just absurd at first, but then a few days later, I'm thinking about what they said, and I realized there was at least some truth in it. And so pray and genuinely consider if you may be in the wrong. Number six, ask others 
if it's a subjective issue. If, if you're not clear on whether or not this correction is even uh, really warranted, try asking somebody else. Go to someone maybe in your family and say, hey, uh, somebody told me that I interrupt people a lot. Is that true? And, uh, and if you ask three people and they all tell you yes, uh, then you probably have your answer. Number seven, if after reflection you come to realize that you were in the wrong, go back and tell them. Again, the goal here is to be approachable. You will be a better Christian if you embrace spiritual accountability. If you're the type of person that people feel comfortable offering correction to, uh, you will grow as a result of that. You'll be a better husband or wife if you encourage your spouse to be able to point out those specks in your eyes that you may not be seeing. Uh, embracing and encouraging correction is vital to your spiritual growth. If you're trying to be a maverick Christian and nobody can tell you anything, uh, you are putting a ceiling on your discipleship. We rarely grow when we're comfortable. We tend to grow best when we're pushed and stretched. Uh, Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens irons. Uh, sorry, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. If you are serious about following Christ, if you want to be a better Christian five years from now than you are today, let people in the church help you. And you also should commit to helping others. Again, that's what, that's what it means to be a part of a church family. Uh, last text, Ephesians 4, verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the te teachers uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's so much in those few verses, but I hope you at least get this point. Speaking the truth in love to one another is the responsibility of every member in a local church. When we do this, uh, we as a church grow together and we become more like Christ. And we do it often without ever having to involve the, the pastors or ever having to bring it before the church. In the vast majority of cases, uh, these types of issues will never go beyond you just talking to that person or maybe bring two or three others with you if they resist at first. Uh, the body will grow together, each part building up the other. And as a church, we, we will show the world around us what following Jesus looks like, uh, which is a huge part of why churches exist. We are outposts of God's kingdom on earth. And this spiritual accountability is an essential part of helping each other be good representatives of Christianity. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.